Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Yeah, today is Palm Sunday. I don't know if, um, if like many people, you have found it a bit difficult to keep track of days at the moment, and each one blends into the next. But today is uh, Palm Sunday, which is a week before Easter, and it's a day where we tend to celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem uh, and being hailed by a crowd. And I want to talk about that story today, just to, uh, look at what happened there. And you might be familiar with it if you've been around uh, for a while in church. You probably know about um, yeah, you know the story: Jesus riding on a donkey, and the crowds are there with uh, their palm leaves and laying them down before him, and uh, shout hosanna. And yeah, you, you know it's a famous story. And I'm just going to take a little step back with us and fill in a bit of the background to what was going on, uh, and just help us understand it and have a think about it together. I think it'd be uh, helpful for us. And, a lot of what happened on Palm Sunday, we don't always think about this, it, it links to what had happened just before it, particularly in the way John tells the story. Uh, and right before it in John's account uh, is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in a lot of the churches uh, around the world, like the Eastern churches, they actually have a name for the Saturday as well as Palm Sunday. And the Saturday they call Lazarus Saturday. So you've got Lazarus Saturday and then Palm Sunday and the two go together. So now let me just fill in a little bit of background about Lazarus. So he was someone who Jesus had been friends with. Uh, we see him come up in the story quite a few times and Jesus was friends with Lazarus's family. There were three of them who lived together, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. So you might be familiar with Mary and Martha from, you know, the story where um, Martha's been serving and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and if, you, if you've ever been to like a church women's day and uh, there's a good chance you've heard about that story it's quite a, a cliched stereotype one to come up but it's actually helpful for all of us to think you know are we focusing just on busyness or are we sitting at the feet of Jesus but this family they lived in a town called Bethany and Bethany was just outside Jerusalem so it was like in the outskirts it was a couple of miles away from the urban center of Jerusalem you had Jerusalem there and next to it there was the Mount of Olives which was the place that Jesus would often go uh, and pray and then uh, you had Bethany so you can imagine that Jesus when he had to go to Jerusalem and have business there you can imagine him using this house of his friends Lazarus Mary and Martha as a bit of a base and what happened to Lazarus is he got ill. He got really, really sick really, really quickly. And his sisters knew that Jesus was powerful and Jesus was good and Jesus was loving. And so they sent for Jesus to come to Lazarus. Now, I'm not sure what you would have done in that situation. Just imagine one of your friends has just got sick and uh, his relatives have said, come on, could, could you come and be with us. If it, if it was me in that situation, I would have gone quickly. I'd have wanted to be there with my friend through the tough time. And particularly, if I was actually able to do something to help, I'd have wanted to get there ASAP. But that's not what Jesus did. We're told that Jesus, he stayed where he was for a couple of days longer. And we're told something slightly counterintuitive, but we're told that he did that 
because of how much he loved them. So because he loved them, he didn't go straight away and heal Lazarus. Because he loved them, he waited. And the effect of this, waiting rather than going straight away, is that by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was dead. So Jesus finds his friend is now dead, he's in the grave, and he weeps. He's, he's broken by it. Jesus wept. Then he joins Mary and Martha in their grief, and he gets them to take him to Lazarus's tomb. So I'll just read a few verses from John 11, verses 38 onwards, just to see what happened next when uh, they went to the tomb. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So he said, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And I think that's the whole thing about the Lazarus story. They get to see something of the glory of God that they wouldn't have seen if Jesus had gone straight away. And even through this hardship and this incredible trauma of seeing Lazarus die, through it, Jesus wants to show them something and reveal something of the Father to them. You know, God doesn't always work on the timing we'd expect, but God is always at work. When John's Gospel, what Jesus does with Lazarus is called the seventh sign. So throughout the story, John's been choosing certain things that Jesus did as signs that show us about who Jesus was. The first one was when he turned water into wine. Then he healed an official son. He healed a paralytic man. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He healed a man who had been born blind. And now he's raised Lazarus from the dead. But this one is somehow a little bit different to what's gone before. Firstly, it happened in Jerusalem. And a couple of the others had been in Jerusalem as well, like the healing of the paralytic and the healing of the blind man. They'd been kind of in and around the Jerusalem area anyway. The rest had been out in the sticks up in Galilee. But you see a different response when Jesus does something like this close to Jerusalem. He's stepping on toes. You've got the priests, the scribes, the religious authorities. Seeing Jesus do this in their own backyard, it causes a, a negative reaction. It's like, they, who, who does he think he is doing this in the area we're meant to be thought of as the religious authorities? A second thing, though, about this Lazarus story is it was very public. He did it with a crowd there. We shouldn't just think there was a Jesus and Mary and Martha. Actually, there's a big crowd around who heard Jesus say to Lazarus, come out, and saw Lazarus come alive. And this is a bit of a change to how Jesus had been operating to this point. Beforehand, Jesus had been a little bit cryptic, a little bit mysterious in how he would do things. He'd tell a parable that wasn't immediately obvious, with, with the idea of kind of thinning out the crowd and drawing out those who really 
wanted to know. When he did kind of the big public works, he'd often say, actually, don't tell people about this yet. He, he kind of was keeping it on the down low. When they wanted to make him king, he, he, he retreated. He didn't want that. But there's a bit of a change now. He's done this big sign publicly. And what happens is this swings all the public opinion in Jerusalem his way. He's now the flavor of the month. And for the enemies of Jesus, Lazarus is a massive problem because you've got this guy living in town who loads of people have seen him dead and then seen Jesus raised into life. And he's walking around as a constant reminder to everyone of what Jesus did. You know, they, they thought that the man who was born blind, who was saying, I once was blind, but now I can see. They thought that was a problem. But for someone to say, I was dead. You saw me. I was in the grave. I had an odor. I, I stank like a dead body. But now I'm alive. That's a massive problem for the people who hated Jesus. And you know, that's actually always been true. The biggest problem that people who oppose the gospel will have is people who've been radically changed by Jesus. You know, when people meet, people like you, people like me, people like uh, all of us who've had this encounter with Jesus and they see a change that they can't explain any other way. That's a problem. I remember about a year after I first became a Christian, I was living with a guy uh, who wasn't a believer, but he said to me, Tom, I don't believe the stuff that you believe, but I've seen such a big change in your life over the last year. It's made me start thinking about things. You see, it's a, it's a huge problem for people who don't want to believe, seeing the effects of what Jesus can do. And as they saw Lazarus alive again, he's a huge problem for the authorities. So they move from just opposing Jesus to now they've started plotting and they actually want to kill him. This is too much. They're not just trying to like silence him and push him away. They want to kill Jesus now. So Jesus needs to keep a bit of a low profile. He can't just go about his business as before. He has to be slightly in hiding. But there was a big festival coming up, the Passover. This was like the highlight of the year for the Jews. It was the moment that they remembered how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt and made them his covenant people. And everyone's going to get together to celebrate. And if Jesus is this uh, religious teacher, this miracle worker, this man of God, Will he really be able to resist going to the Passover? Maybe you've seen a Robin Hood movie where the sheriff of Nottingham organises the archery contest, knowing that there's no way Robin will be able to resist. There's something about Passover. Will Jesus really stay away? So we pick up John chapter 12 and six days now before the Passover. So we're in the build up. The festivities are starting. It's a Saturday. And where does Jesus go? He goes to Lazarus's house. We're told that uh, in verse one of chapter 12. Word starts to get around that Jesus is there. And so all the people start heading over. A crowd descends on Bethany. This is like the place to go. And I reckon there's two reasons that they wanted to go to Bethany. I think a lot of people wanted to see Jesus because all these rumors were circulating about him. All these people had a story to tell. I think people wanted to see him for themselves. But I reckon a lot of them wanted to go and see Lazarus as well. Go and see this guy who was dead and is now alive and see him with their own eyes and hear the story with his own mouth. But this whole crowd heads down to Bethany. This bandwagon is starting to form. And this was disastrous for the priests and the rulers. They're just seeing everything starting to go against them. So now, as well as wanting to kill Jesus, they even make plans to kill Lazarus again. So he was dead, alive, and they want to make him dead again so that this problem goes away so all this is in the background and then we get to the Sunday 
and Jesus decides he's going to do it. He's going to head for Jerusalem. He's going to join the festivities. As he goes there, the crowd starts to gather and they proclaim him and they hail him. You've got this sense of triumph in the air. It feels like a military general coming home from a war and he's won the victory and all the people are out to celebrate and share in the victory. Or, or maybe today, if it happened in our world, it'd be like an open top bus parade. You know, think after the 2012 Olympics with all the gold medalists got on an open top bus and were just taken through the streets and everyone was out to cheer them on. There's something of that kind of vibe going on here. And this is the point we usually would pick up the Palm Sunday story. So let's read um, those verses. It's in John 12 and i'll read from verse 12 the next day <coughs> excuse me the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel and jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written fear not daughter of zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt his disciples did not understand these things at first but when jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him the crowd that had been with him when he called lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign so the pharisees said to one another you see you're gaining nothing look the world has gone after him jesus knows what is going on here there's been a ramping up there's been a build-up to this moment and he's deliberately now enacting this prophecy from zechariah so zechariah had told about how the king would come on a donkey's colt and jesus did just that by doing his sign now publicly by entering jerusalem in this way jesus is making a very deliberate statement he is israel's king coming in all his glory <clears throat> in fact he'd said to mary earlier uh, at the tomb side of lazarus did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god well what is she seeing now jesus being hailed as king in jerusalem his opponents they also know what's going on here as well they know that everything is going wrong for them it's all getting away you know they say look the world has gone after them and it's like in their head, they realize that Jesus is being recognized and received as king. But it doesn't even occur to them to repent, to, to join the crowd and hail this one who can raise the dead. They don't even think like that. They just want to stop him because he's treading on their toes. The crowd also know what's going on here. You know, you know it's evident in what they're saying. It's not just like they're getting caught up in some hype. I remember back in 2005, there was a moment when for about three weeks everyone i knew was going james blunt crazy he, he was new on the scene and everyone was making out he was like the best artist ever rushing out to buy his album and there was just some hype and then people listened to it and realized it wasn't all that good what was happening here is nothing like that it wasn't just kind of the hype of the moment but the way people are talking blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel hosanna they're saying something very specific they're saying jesus is coming as the promised messiah and he's doing so publicly and they're receiving him as such so the authorities can't be having that 
we've reached a point now in the story where people are having to decide which team they're on. Are you for Jesus? Will you receive him as Messiah? Or are you, are you against him? Do you want him stopped? So that's kind of what's going on. People have a sense of this moment. And yet we're told in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It's saying that the disciples, that there must be more to it than just what's going on in the surface level. They probably understood the kind of surface movements of the crowd coming out to receive Jesus. But it's, it's saying they didn't really understand what it was all about. And that poses the question to us, if they didn't understand it, if there was more going on than they grasped, do we understand it? Do we see the significance of this? And there's just a few more verses that follow it that I want to read that just kind of explain further what this really is about. So verse 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. So you've got some Greeks who've come to Jerusalem for the festival. They obviously see the crowd. They see what's going on. And so they, they ask Philip if they can see Jesus. Philip gets Andrew involved. Together they go and ask Jesus if he'll give these uh, guys an audience. And what Jesus says is the hour has come when the Son of Man is to be glorified. And, and you think, well, isn't that what's happening now? Aren't you being glorified right now? This looks like the victory parade. You'd have expected that this would be the moment that Jesus was being glorified. And yet Jesus has hinted that for him, being glorified means something very different. You know, God's glory isn't always shown in the moment that looks like the big success, the big triumphal moment with the crowd. That's not always where we see the glory of God. And Jesus goes on. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's comparing himself to a grain of wheat. Now, imagine a grain of wheat. What is the glory of that grain of wheat? Would that grain of wheat receive glory if we were all chatting about what an amazing little bit of wheat it is and everyone was praising it? No, the glory of the wheat comes in the harvest as that wheat goes into the ground and then the fruit comes from it. And we all get to enjoy uh, these crops that have come out of this grain of wheat. Jesus is saying it's likewise for him. The glory of Christ is the cross. As he goes down into the ground, as he dies and as he's buried, but from that new life to many, many thousands of sons and daughters. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can be focused on making Jesus look good. We want to put on a show. We want, in worldly terms, everybody to be attracted to him. It's like we want the triumphal entry moment over and over again. And yet even in that moment, 
Jesus wants to take us somewhere else because the glory of Christ is the cross and it's from the cross that comes the harvest. And then having applied that to himself, Jesus then says it will be the same for us as well. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, don't get too caught up in the kind of love-hate language. That was like a, a Hebrew rhetorical device that they would use. But, but it's a matter of priority. Is keeping your life and all the trappings and all the worldly ideas of glory that go with it, is that your priority? Loving life is trying to be caught up in the moment of triumph. And Jesus isn't having a go at that because um, those moments will come. One came here for Jesus. But you can't make your life or, or your Christianity all about reliving triumph moments over and over again. Jesus is telling us Christianity is about dying. It's about going to the cross with Christ. And for him, that was literally what it involved. He had to go and die for us. And for many others over the, over the centuries, this is what it's been like to be faithful to Christ. But but whether we're called down that path or not, I suspect um, the numbers listening to this who are called to that path are probably few. But we're all called to die to ourselves, to die to our glory, to die to the things that we would want to live for. It's like letting go of the things that we have been holding on to. And yet in dying is fruitfulness. As we die to ourselves, we see the harvest. And a lot of us are experiencing it at this time where things we had valued, things we had been living to and living for are being stripped away from us. And as we die to self, are we ready to see God's presence just bring about a harvest of righteousness and patience and gentleness and joy in our soul? Will we go on that journey with Jesus in laying it all down? We keep it for eternal life. So this moment was a moment of seeming success jesus through raising lazarus publicly and all the crowd hailing him this looked like jesus has been lifted up and his enemies have been pushed down well in, in easter week we see the tables get turned a little bit jesus's enemies get the upper hand on him they they gather a new crowd it probably isn't the same crowd as the ones here but a new crowd who are baying for blood shouting crucify him crucify him. it looks like on the cross now they're winning and jesus is losing but what we read tells us that's not true at all. Jesus hung on the cross and in that is the glorification. And as that grain of wheat fell into the earth and died, three days later, rising again in glorious triumph, even more than the triumphal entry, with the beginning of a harvest that now includes you and me and any that will put their trust in him.